0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Generationally low interest rates, inflation, unthinkable geopolitical risks, the speed of information, and the prevalence of noise challenge many of our long-held conventional wisdoms. Many investors are at a loss as to how to save and invest to meet their goals. Against that fearsome backdrop, Nick Majuli joins us to talk about his book, Just Keep Buying, which is due out in April on Harriman House Publishing. Nick is the creator of the successful Of Dollars and Data blog and is the chief operating officer at Ridholtz Wealth Management. His book challenges many widely held investment beliefs and recasts them with a data-driven analysis for the modern investor. Welcome aboard, Nick. How you doing, Frazier? I'm doing well. You have to be really doing well. Congratulations on the release of the book. You've got to be thrilled. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just like, you know, years of work that is now coming together, right? It's kind of cool to kind of see that happen. We were talking before about this. When it happens and it launches, you get the wave of euphoria that happens. It's a really cool thing. So enjoy. It's a lot of fun.
1: It hasn't happened yet, but I liken it to like, a, you know, an IPO,
0: like an like individual <laughs> writer's IPO. So I'm, I'm excited for that, that feeling. Well, and the good news is it's good. So you can enjoy the accolades when they come over because they're well-deserved. I appreciate that, Fraser. I really do. So let's get into it a little bit. First of all, your background is really interesting, talk to us a little bit about your growing up, how you made it to Stanford, what led to the development of your blog and how you made it to Ritholtz and how that all sort of formed the worldview to get to writing the book.
1: Yeah. So I was obviously like really into math, really into science stuff. I think getting into Stanford was really mostly, there's a lot of luck there. And I think maybe the best decision I ever made in my entire life, the most impactful one was deciding to apply early because back I mean back in the day it was you know difficult to get in today it's like almost impossible I mean that the acceptance rate a lot of top schools is you know in single digits you know it's like five percent now maybe ten percent back when I got in it was ten percent to get in overall but if you went early it's eighteen percent there's no single thing like this is something I tried to tell like if I'm talking to like parents about like how to get their kids into a good school like there is no single factor I know of that can literally double your chances of getting into a competitive school than applying early. Like there's nothing. You could get a 2400 SAT. You could have the auditorium, you could have straight A's. None of that is going to double your chances of getting in, right? This will. So for me, I, I looked at the data. This was just me as 18 year old, you know, kid. And I was like, okay, well, like, let's just assume I'm a random applicant. So 18% chance, I'll take it. So I got in with an 18%. That was the acceptance rate my year. So it was competitive, but not as competitive as now. So I think that helped a lot. And yeah, just kind of studied economics there really enjoyed it. My senior spring, I took my first programming course. And that was my biggest regret because I wish I'd taken programming computer programming earlier. It took like the intro to computer science then right after I graduated, I went into consulting, but not the traditional management consulting, which is like, you know, creating PowerPoint decks, you're like, Thinking about the future of a business. So instead of being forward looking, I was in something called litigation consulting, which is very backward looking. It says, what has happened in the past? How do we remedy it? And there's a lot of data analysis that goes into that. So I really just became really good at analytics. And so that I basically used that skill set. And I was really inv- interested in investing in personal finance. So I took that skill set I learned from working six years in consulting and I just applied it to a new area, you know. And so I think that's kind of the thing I do that's a little bit different than most of the personal finance writers is like I do all my own data analysis. I run everything myself. And so I got lucky and I was happened to be in the right place to get those skills. And I just happened to love this stuff. And so I wrote about it. So that's kind of the path there. I started writing, blogging in early 2017. After about a year of doing that, I started talking with Ritholtz one thing led to another and I basically started working for them in mid 2018. So about a year and a half after my journey, I transitioned from consulting into finance and I've been there ever since. It's been almost four years now. So that's it. And I just kept writing every once a week, a blog post once a week and did that. Basically it came up with this kind of philosophy of how I look at personal finance and investing, put it all into a book and that's what Just Keep Buying is. So that's kind of how everything came about.
0: What was the tipping point for you to when you said, okay, I've, I've got this blog, it's successful. I have my philosophy. When did you say, okay, you know, it's time to codify this into something a little bit more long form
1: honestly it was covid i still remember like first wave march 2020 i was in new york city i was like this is crazy you know everything obviously cases came down i was like oh this thing's over right this thing's over no (laughs) real day happened second wave came and i'm like oh my gosh like this is gonna last a little longer i think but then you know cases came back down i said you know what that was everyone else so new york had the big hit then everyone else had the big hit i'm like okay now we're done right But then december 2020 was that next big wave this is obviously before you know micron and everything and that big wave it was worse than the first the prior two waves in terms of cases and i probably overreacted i was like this thing's gonna last forever so i saw that and i said i need to use this time because i'm trapped inside i got nothing to do i can't go out with friends i can't do this i'm like i'm gonna do this so i basically took every single weekend from january 2021 to like mid May 2021 and just wrote the book, you know, and put it all together. And I would say half of it is like old blog posts that my editor is kind of, you know, we've kind of Frankenstein different pieces together and created something better than the original. But yeah, half of the material is going to be things that if you're a really big fan of mine, you've seen before half of it's going to be completely new material. And even if you've seen it before, you probably don't remember all of it. And it's, it's going to be better, right? We've, we've refined the arguments. You know, my editor did a great job with that really kind of guiding me and saying, what do you really mean here? And so to digging in versus just taking such as a copy and paste verbatim of blog posts, because there's a lot of stuff we refined in here. So that's kind of how the
0: process went around. So one of the things I was struck by when I read it was that you take your data Background and apply it to, I'd say, rules of typical bromides that permeate through standard investment advice. And you don't cast them aside. You don't say, oh, this is completely wrong. You sort of create data driven support for them and adjustments where necessary. Was that sort of the overarching thought as you put the book together and started writing it? Was to say, you know what, I've got this skill set and I've noticed some things that the public just doesn't quite see right now. Was that part of the rationale?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of arguments in the personal finance investing space, which are almost like dogma in the sense of like they're just accepted by everyone and no one questions them. Right. And one of those we don't have to get into all this right now, but one of those, for example, is you should always max out your 401k. Like, I do not know a single personal finance expert before me talking about it, at least. That was like you should not max your 401k i'm not saying no one's ever done it but it's it's almost universally accepted to do that and i'm just like well let's see let's run the numbers and let's see should you do it what circumstance should you should you not and so i kind of get into that a little bit and generally I, i don't think it's always the best option for everyone i'm not saying it's stupid to do it i'm just saying i challenge a lot of things that i think are almost accepted like as dogma and the other one too is like you should cut your spending versus raise your income that's a big debate right there's like two factions and some believe you should cut spending some should Say so you should raise income to grow your wealth, and I have a very strong stance, one of those sides. And you can read the book to find out which one, or we can get into it. Up to you. But yeah. So that's kind of my idea. It's like I was like, let's let's kind of go back to first principles and say like, what is accepted as truth, and let's see how much of that is actually valid. And there's there's a lot of stuff that is valid, obviously, right? Like saving over time, that matters. Savings rate matters. All these things are true, but there's a lot of things where I'm not sure that the community really ran, dug into the data, and the data may say something different than what a lot of people say. So that's kind of where I'm coming from.
0: And I like the idea that, you know, you challenge the one size fits all type of scenario and different people have different ways of doing things and different career paths. And I was struck positively by the fact that you're willing to take on some of those sacred cows and say, look, you know, what what are we doing here? Let's actually analyze this as opposed to take it for granted. Yeah, exactly. I think the hardest
1: thing to write about, in my opinion, is taxes, anything to do with taxes like 401k, raw, anything like that, because everyone's tax situation is different. Are you single? Are you married? Which state are you in? Which state do you plan to retire? in? those are just four questions right there that are going to affect your taxes immensely. And that doesn't get into anything else about even your income level. That's going to affect stuff, right? So that alone, like your optimal decision is going to change based on all of those factors. And so it's really tough to write about, but I tried to do it in a way that like That led to a lot of I just want people to question the things that they don't question normally. I think that's going to help more people just to be like, hey, should I be doing that? Should I not? Just the question is going to lead to more answers and more people getting more value um, from this than just literally just, oh, hey, just do this because I told you to do it. I want to have people have an open mind and really to think about these problems instead of just saying, oh, here's the answer. Do this no matter what. So that's kind of the idea.
0: Well, one of the things that I liked about the book too was your your decision to – first of all, you had a very, I think, powerful introduction and sort of a, a concept around using the book and sort of getting the reader ready for what you were going through in terms of analyzing these concepts. But then you divide the book into saving and investing, which I thought was useful because if you don't make some sort of choice to sort of break up things, then it can become a hodgepodge a little bit and difficult for people to follow maybe take us through a little bit what your thought process was around that decision about the introduction and then dividing between the saving and investing.
1: Yeah. So the introduction was kind of just meant to like get people hooked, to be honest. Like it's meant to like, you know, come come strong out the gate, talk about this investment philosophy, just keep buying, why I use it, why I think it's important, why the data supports it, et cetera. And that's just kind of like a hook just to get people interested and like, hey, you know, like, that alone can would be a worthwhile be valuable on its own but i don't think that answers all the questions Right, this this book is not just about oh just keep buying every month in your 401k and you're going to be fine like that's great and that that helps a ton but there's a lot of other things you're going to come a lot of other issues you're going to cross in your financial journey and so in the first chapter i basically have to figure out where you are like every person's in a different stage in their financial journey and so because of that I have this thing called the save invest continuum and figuring out where you are in that continuum kind of tells you where you should focus more. I give a simple example of this, you know, and all you need to know is two numbers from two numbers alone. I can tell you basically where you are in this continuum and what you should focus on. So the first number is how much do you expect to save in the next year? That's just some number. So, for example, if you're if you know, you can save $500 a month you do that for the next 12 months, that's $6,000. So that's your first number six grand is how much I can expect to save in the next year. Okay second number how much are your investments going to earn you in the next year so let's say you had twenty thousand dollars you expect to earn a five percent return that's a thousand bucks that's your second number so how much your investments expect to return you the next year thousand bucks right so you have six grand is your first number a thousand bucks is your second number whatever number is bigger that's the thing you've got to spend more time on right and so in this case if you can save six thousand but your investments are only earning you a thousand you should spend more time figuring out how to save more so you can save that money invested in income producing assets and raise the other number that that $1,000 needs to go up. Right. And so over time, this should naturally happen as you save more money, and get it invested, that thousand will become 2003, et cetera. That expected number should keep going up. And as you get older, if things go well, that second number should be much higher. And by the time you're a retiree, that number is basically everything. If you can't save anything, your savings are zero. But your investment returns are everything, right? So, and you'll see this transition happen over time. For example, I'm at a point now where if there's a bad year in the market, it can wipe out everything I save. So, if I could save, let's say I was going to be able to save ten thousand dollars next year, if the market crashes, like I will lose more than ten thousand dollars, at least on paper, right? So, I think that's something you'll see, and especially as you get older, like you can lose multiple years of savings in a bat in a crash, and that's the thing. Like that one continuum, this one principle is what overlays the whole book because. If you're in a stage where like, hey, I need to spend more time focusing on my savings, then you should really focus on those chapters and what you can do to improve your, you know, raise your income, all that stuff. But if you're later in life where you have a lot of money invested, you got to really think about those issues. And so I'm not saying that both aren't important. Like I'm in a stage now where I have to think about both, but figuring out where to focus your time matters because when I was 23, I spent way too much time focusing on my investments when I didn't really have any money to invest,
0: right? So it was silly. It was it was
1: cool for educational reasons, but it wasn't that useful. I should have spent more time you know, learning programming or getting better at my career. That would have had a much bigger impact on my financial life.
0: One of the things that when I tried to deal with it in my book was, was a chapter, basically, how much do you cost? And as you'd noted, savings investing continuum is important. And a big mistake that I've seen in the high net worth space are for people who are high earners and they don't save enough to get to that point where they can live off of their assets. And a lot of times that gets rooted in a difficult situation that they've been in, in terms of having spending that's been dictated by an income stream that is at best temporary and at other times maybe just at a windfall and they sort of extrapolate out multiple time periods and say, oh, well, this is going to go on forever forever. When in fact it doesn't, and then retirement comes, and they haven't figured out that investment component so that they could live off of their assets, how do you want your readers to think about spending as they analyze that savings versus investing continuum? I think when it comes to spending, you're right. Like how much do you cost is a great way to view that. And I don't, I don't get as deep into
1: spending in the book, but I think the main thing to think about is like figure out if you have some level of spending you want to get to. There's a lot of rules of thumb you can use for this. The 4% rule is not perfect, but it's just a decent proxy, right? So if you know you're spending X dollars a year, multiply by 25, and that's roughly a decent retirement savings you're going to have to save up to. So if you're spending 100K a year, you need 2.5 million. And so, yeah, if there are people who are spending an, an exorbitant amount of money and they're not getting to a point where they can get to that level where they can draw on that for 30 years... Then yeah that's going to be problematic so i see how that could be an issue for a lot of the people you might be working with in terms of how i think individuals think about their spending i don't overanalyze my spending a lot i really don't i just have a rough idea of my fixed spending and i know hey here's my rent here's my anything that's recurring i think about like that's kind of what's important and i will look at my discretionary here and there but i don't track every single thing i think you're going to beat yourself up if you start getting there but obviously like you know if you're saving money like that's that's the main thing if you know you're saving money then you're then you're fine right and if you're not saving any money month to month then, you know, if your expected savings are zero, then you need to like, you know, this, uh, you can take all these more complex questions and go back to the save invest continuum, right? If your expected savings are zero or negative over time, like that's really bad. So you need to spend all of your time fixing that thing in some way. So I wish I had a better answer for that, but I I think it's just a complex question and it really has a lot to do with, you know, kind of where you are currently. So you kind of, based on that, I think that's kind of what's important.
0: Yeah. And I guess the way I kind of answered it too, is not only, not only figure out what you're spending now, but but try to game out what you think you are going to cost in five years, 10 years. Are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? Are you going to have a house and educations? And a little bit of planning or foresight ahead of time and using time and understanding that savings investing continuum now could save you some heartache later on. There is some data on retirement spending, and generally they find that retirement
1: spending declines by about 1% a year in retirement. So So it's a slow decline. Usually people spend less on certain things. You know, you're not getting a bunch of new clothes all the time. You're not getting, you know, do you need a new car every year? No, probably not. Right. So a lot of the things you're gonna be spending less on generally over time. And I talk about this in the book. I think most people, I mean, there's obviously exceptions to this rule, but most people probably need to save less than they think, because if you look at the data, like the average inheritances that are bequests or whatever you want to call them that are happening at death, or they just they go up with time. So generally most retirees, only one in one in six retirees are actually drawing down on their assets, like actually pull like selling principal. Most are living off their the income from them or just social security and the income. They're, most are not actually drawing down assets, which is kind of shocking to think like, oh what? That's not doesn't make sense. And that's like, I think Kitsies, Michael Kitsies has his article, it's like, you're just as likely to forex your wealth in retirement as you are to run out of money or something. It's something like really like profound like that. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, most most retirees end up having more money, right? And they end up, their money is growing over time, even though they're supposed to be pulling down on their wealth, their wealth is growing. And that's kind of what we generally see. I think the other thing to think about there is just if your money keeps growing over time, you're going to bequest more and and all sorts of things like that. So just keep that in mind.
0: So let's focus a little bit on the investing side of the continuum. The title of the book is Just Keep Buying. How did you focus on that one? What was the data analysis that poked into that and gave you that headline that you could use to attract the reader and then by the same token help them get where they're going on that investment side of the continuum?
1: I originally did this in just US stocks where I was like, hey, you know, if you buy US stocks over time, they generally go up. And in most periods, like I don't have the the numbers in front of me, but it's like even when you buy at the worst times, but you just keep buying over time, like your portfolio generally goes up. Right. And that's just that's been true across the US. Right. And I said, you know, let's look at international stocks, too. And like you look across most income producing assets and they generally go up over time, right? especially if you're like reinvesting the dividends or the whatever payments you're getting. And so that's kind of the main analysis that I consider. It's like just if you're just buying on a consistency, you're buying on a monthly basis, the probability of you losing money in an equity market is very small. And I think there's like a lot of research for that. I think the the best stuff out there is, you know, triumph of the optimist. They, you look, they looked at 100 years of data, right? And then DFA has data on the equity risk premium across a host of different countries. And generally, most, I say most equity markets most of the time have a long-term positive trend. There's always going to be exceptions to this, right? Even right now, as we're discussing this, you know, the Russian stock market is down 78% in the last month. That is not normal, but it happens. And I know all of these, I don't, well, what about Japan? Like I know all of the counter arguments people are going to make, you know, you can say Japan eighty-nine to ninety-nine. You can say Spain seventy-three to eighty-three. You can look at a host of European countries after 08. Greece, for example, that's one where, like, if you just keep buying, you'd be pretty broke right now. If that's all you had, right? That's why I say you've got to diversify. You have to have, own other equity markets, own real estate, own so many assets. If any one of them doesn't do well, you're not going to be completely screwed. And so that's, I think, is the key point here. And that's that's the data that I've illustrated in the book
0: how do you advise clients or how do you talk to people about getting their brains and emotions away from the data that would sort of drive the idea of having longer time horizons and maybe allocating with some liquidity cushions so that you're able to ride these storms out without buying high and selling low? Yeah. So I think you have to think about
1: emergency fund a lot. I don't discuss this as much in the book. I think, yeah, you have to just, you have, I mean, cash, you need to have some sort of cash or a cushion of some sort in case something happens. Because like The unthinkable happens more often than not. Like COVID just showed us that. Imagine you owned a restaurant and then COVID comes. And now all of a sudden, not only are you not getting income, you're now just accumulating losses every month. So having cash, that's not always going to save you. It's like, doesn't matter how good your boat is in a typhoon, right? So at certain points, there are certain tail risks that are beyond anything you could prepare for. And there's just, honestly, there's nothing you can do. How do you expect the unexpected? But having sufficient amount of cash, six months, 12 months, however much as emergency fund. I think is really important for a lot of people but it you should match it to your liabilities i'm a single male right now and so i don't have kids i don't have a wife i don't have any of those things that are like where i have to take care of someone else it's just me so in the worst case scenario like god forbid something happens i could be eating rice and beans every day if i needed to you know and trying to buy back into the market right or something like that even if i lost my job god forbid like there are ways where i have enough now in terms of emergency savings and everything like i would be fine because i built in those those kind of liquidity cushions i think you have to do that i think people who are who aren't doing that and are like, oh, I don't want to just sit in cash because like, yes, cash is not a great asset. I think it's great when you need it. And that's that's the most important thing. Right. It's like it's annoying to have, but it's, it's absolutely necessary um in, in really bad times.
0: As I tell people, it's good for sleeping.
1: <laughs> you know, it's a stock. So we eat well, bond. So we sleep well. Right. That's the that's the old joke that was on some like Boglehead forum or something. So.
0: I think we generally agree that diversification among asset allocations is a good idea. You don't want to be too much into one asset, asset class or otherwise. The Russian example sort of reverberates around that. But then there are the people who bet their career on one particular company and they have big exposure. Maybe they work for Google and they have lots of stock options. And then in an effort to save, you know, they try to do what they can to diversify. But again, they've got big single positions either in their career or maybe real estate is how they think they have their edge. How do you think about that for clients You know, as they're going about their saving versus investing continuum when they're in a position where their income or their wealth accumulation is so dependent on one single thing?
1: The framework I like to use is like a regret minimization framework. And so like, yes, the book's called Just Keep Buying, but like there are times when you have to sell, obviously I think selling matters. And I think concentrated positions, there are times when you have to sell. So I always say like my framework is like you should sell to lock in a certain standard of living that you're comfortable with. And then if you want to jump to another standard of living, like you're like, oh, I want to, I'm willing to risk this much of my wealth to possibly be in this scenario. Then and if you feel comfortable doing that, then risk it. Take the risk. You know, maybe you're going to hold, you know, you know, half your wealth in Google. Well, I don't think that's something that I would recommend if the other half is like Decently diversified, and you're like, even if the Google went to zero, I could still live a decent life, then go ahead, have at it. Right. That's, that's the kind of thing. It's about not doing all, I think all or nothing decisions are the issue, right? It's like, it's like being 98% Google versus being 50% Google, right? And I also think the other, the other side of it is like, oh, you should always sell out of your concentrated positions and hold 0% of it. I think that's also wrong too. Cause, you know, let's say you owned Apple or you worked at Apple and like since 2012 or something, if you just sold it every month, yes, you would use, no matter what, you've probably done well, but like, if you just held a little bit of it and that thing starts going up, you're not going to feel as bad as if you're on zero, right? Get off zero, at least. If that thing triples and you if you sold it all and that thing triples or quadruples what the market does, you're going to feel really stupid. So you want to pick some sort of middle ground where you don't feel as stupid. No matter what happens. And that's kind of that's my philosophy is like regret minimization is, is the key thing. And so I kind of talk about that when we're talking about selling assets.
0: And, and something that I've noticed in in my practice is you move up the ladder in asset size, certainly regret minimization, lifestyle maintenance, making sure that that's funded for as long as you want it to be funded, but then also building in a bucket for what I call optionality, uh, meaning if you want to pivot and change careers, or invest in this, or do something different, or bail out for a year and <laughs> sail the world to do whatever, that third bucket is interesting because you know when people have to make decisions around current cash flows in order to maintain them, sometimes that can feel very ugly, especially as you get older and those options become fewer and fewer. If one of the reasons you can't take them is because they're not funded, that turns into that goes straight back to the regret minimization analysis that we talked about there. I just add that as something that I've seen in my travels that seems to work.
1: I know, you know, that like this book is very and all the stuff I talk about is very analytical and numbers and stuff but at the end of the day, you know, the money's meant so you could do things you want to do with it. So you can live the life you want to live, right? So if you know what you want to do in your life, like oh, I want to sail the world for a year, I want to do this then yeah, you should lock up those things, try and plan for those things in a way so that you can live the life you want to live. It's not just about maximizing your wealth. I know some people think it is, but I think it's really about just like living the best life you can live that, that, you, that you would be happy with and feel, you know, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, you got to think about all of those issues.
0: I read the book before the Russian example has come to the fore and we're in the midst of what I would call a pretty serious market test where a lot of people... I think really haven't really faced this type of market correction since really since the global financial crisis. What would your advice be to current investors that are in the midst of all this and are tasting a fist for the first time from the market and from the geopolitical world these days in sort of keeping on to their course?
1: I really think it depends on your allocation. For example, right now, as I mean, I don't know by the time this comes out, I don't know what's going to be happening with tech stocks, but you know, there's a lot of popular tech names that are down 70, 80% right now. And so if you own, if you have a lot of single stock risk, there's a very different Thing I would tell you than if you own you own mostly index funds, right? Because I own mostly index fund. And it's like these type of things happen all the time. Like we have geopolitical risk. We had global pandemic in 2020. You know, December 2018, there was a crash. January 2016, there was a crash. I can go back to oh, 2008, 2000. I can go all the way back through history. These things happen all the time. And so that's not to say, oh, no, one it doesn't matter. Like, don't do anything, obviously. But at the same time, like this is a very normal thing. Like right now, the market's down, what, 10, 15%. I don't know what the exact number is. It's very normal. It could go to 20% down. I go to 25% down. It could go more than that. You go 50% down. Who knows? But this stuff happens all the time. And like, if you know data and you know the history, it's like, the more I've seen this, like I've been studying this for so long, it just doesn't shock me anymore because it keeps happening over and over and over again. And it's like, we never learn. Like, it's like, oh, this is new. It's like, n- like, just if you studied history, you'd be like, it's like, the, oh, the sky, coming, I'm going to start the sun comes out every day. And it's like, whoa, this is so weird. It's like this happens all the time. Like this is a very normal occurrence and it's a natural process within markets. And so what's my advice to people is like obviously the same. Just keep buying, like stay on the course, do your thing. These things will pass. It may get worse, of course, I don't know. But as long as you're if you have a decently diversified portfolio, you shouldn't have to worry about this type of stuff in like the aggregate in a really big way. If you have a decent amount of emergency cash and you have a, a good portfolio, you should not have to worry about this in an existential way to your finances.
0: For new investors or for parents who want to get their kids involved, sort of touching the stove (laughs) right at the moment at a time of maximum stress, what would you have them focus on or what would you have them read to get started? Obviously your book, but other things to get some of the concepts that are useful to having a good long-term plan in place.
1: I think really just
0: teaching like the mathematics
1: behind compounding, I mean, for children, especially because that is it's so non-intuitive for anyone, for adults, for anybody, but especially for children. Like, I know this is very cliche to tell the story of, oh, you put one grain of rice on the first, (laughs) the checkerboard and two grains, right? And by the end, there's more rice than ever produced in the history of mankind or whatever it is, something like that, right? That type of analogy works really well. The lily pad analogy, you know, if the, the lake is full after 30 minutes and the number of lily pads doubles every minute, when is it half full, right? And it's like, oh, it's at the 29th minute. It, right, because then it's full. You know that type of stuff really teaches compounding in a way that I think children can learn. So I don't have like necessary books I can think about. You know, because I'm not really at that stage of my life where I'm thinking about like how would I educate my kids on this. But I think compounding is just the first way to think about it. Really, just thinking about risk and how they make decisions. I think decisions and decision making and you know, decision criteria are really important. And so trying to teach your kids like, okay, well if you do this, this might happen or this might happen. Like thinking about trade offs. I think that's really important. That's that's true of adults in general, but like. When people think about trade-offs and risk, I think that's how you really start to understand markets and like, okay, if I do this, what's the chance that this is going to happen versus this? And of course, we can't ever know the exact probabilities, but we can guesstimate or try and feel it out.
0: Tell us how we find the book.
1: And find it on Amazon. Search Just Keep Buying. It's also available on, at Harriman House, our publishers. You can check them out there. And yeah, and then my blog of dollarsanddata.com, I will definitely have a link to the book
0: for The listeners, that uh, this will all be in the show notes as well. I got to read this a little bit early and was very impressed, and I am psyched for the success you're going to have for this. Congratulations! I appreciate it,
1: Frazier. I've always appreciated your guidance in this stuff and you know, everything you tune with the state, with wealth planning for the 1%, all that. It's going to be great, and I'm going to be using that in the future. So, I'll, that's all I'm going to say for now. So,
0: I hope to be involved somehow, subway. Some so, congratulations, Nick, and continued success.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Fraser.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.